Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. Today, I'm speaking with Mauro Guillen. In addition to being the Zaman Professor of International Management at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School, he's the author of 2030, How Today's Biggest Trends Will Collide and Reshape the Future of Everything. We'll cover a lot of ground in this episode, including remote work, an aging population, the rise of China and Africa, climate change, the blockchain, and other trends that will transform the world over the next decade. Mauro, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Um, if I were to try to sum up your entire book in a sentence, it would maybe be something like the next decade will be complicated, but ultimately what you're offering is a message of, and I the quote, a message of optimism about the future while we are managing the anxieties of the present. Do you think the fact that you're offering a message of optimism is a contrarian message these days? It probably is. Uh, I'm a realistic optimist. I see opportunity in all of these big transformations that we're going through. Uh, but what I think is most important is for us to be aware of the fact that things are changing and then look for ways in which we can prosper amidst all of that change. So I'm an optimist from my point of view. I think uh, human beings have the ability to adapt. And I think uh, we will be able to manage these transformations ahead of us. Um. So let's talk uh, a bit about some of these trends and transformations. Uh, when you when you start to look at this, because what you're doing, you know, what you're doing is you're you're making you're making a forecast. You're making a forecast about the future. What are the common mistakes you think people make when they're trying to give a sense of the the possibilities or the scenarios over the course of a decade or more ahead? I think it's essentially three big mistakes uh, that one can make. One is, as I said earlier, not to recognize that things are changing, thinking that, oh, you know what? I mean, this shall pass. We will go back to where we were, let's say, a year ago or two years ago. So I think that's self-defeating and that is fundamentally wrong. The second thing is to be so, you know, excited about the present that you cannot lose sight of the shore and explore new horizons. Right. So I think you need to be adventurous when so many things are changing. We need to essentially think out of out of the box. We need to pursue new horizons. And then the third big mistake is to make irreversible decisions. You see, when so many things are changing, you cannot make a decision that cannot be reversed because, hey, the state of the world may be different tomorrow or a week later or a month later. So you need to be able to build flexibility into your life. If you make decisions that run you into a corner and then things change because so many trends are going on right now in the world, then you may find yourself in a situation in which uh, you cannot, uh, you know, go into reverse. Uh, so you need to be able to course correct. That's my message. Do you think sometimes it's just the opposite? You're talking about people not realizing that these changes are going on. It seems to me that over the past year, people have been too willing to extrapolate from changes into the future. Uh, that because of the pandemic, cities, people aren't going to want to live in cities anymore. Cities are over. 
or because of the pandemic, we're not going to go to the office anymore. We're all going to be working for home. Uh, restaurants are no, we're not going to go to restaurants anymore. I wonder something. Maybe it's just a uh, a phenomenon of the past year that they were too quick to think, ah, there's something that has changed, and now I'm going to extrapolate it forever into the future. Yeah, you're putting your finger on something that I think is really important. We need to be able to tell which trends will become permanent and which ones perhaps uh, you know, will create a hybrid situation. Let me give you an example. I think uh, the use of technology that uh, we are making these days, that is a permanent change. Um, if you remember before the pandemic, some uh, categories of people weren't very comfortable with technology, but now out of necessity, they have become very used to using technology for shopping, for working, and so on and so forth. Um, so I think uh, what is really important is to also understand that some of the trends that we're seeing, for example, remote work, I think is a very good example. However, I don't think we're going to stay the way we are now, which is um, half of the population working 100% of the time from the home. I think we'll go into a hybrid model whereby maybe we commute to the office a couple of days a week and we work from home uh, the rest of the week. So you're absolutely right. I mean, in the midst of uh, a pandemic such as this, we need to also understand which trends are just being accelerated by the pandemic period, like the use of technology, and which others have um, been triggered by the pandemic, like remote work. But perhaps in the future, we will you know, rearrange the pieces yet again and perhaps evolve towards a hybrid model. Uh, I think a couple of trends, which we can probably feel, I guess, probably pretty confident in that you mentioned, we have a, you know, sort of declining birth rates, longer life expectancies, so great. So two trends. How does that change the kind of economy that we're looking at? I, I, I suppose we can think of broadly among uh, advanced economies, rich nations. How does that change the economy we're looking at a decade from now? So it will change um, to a very large extent. Let me explain. But first, commend you on actually doing what I'm asking people to do in the book, which is to not consider one trend in isolation of the others, but rather to connect the dots across trends. And you mentioned longevity, people are living longer, and you mentioned the birth rate is coming down. So there are huge implications for consumer markets and also for labor markets. So for consumer markets, to put it simply, by the year 2030, the largest segment of the market in Asia, in Europe, here in the United States, will be the population above age 60. We're living longer, and then each new generation is a smaller in size because of the falling birth rate, right? You see, up until now, we've been used to this idea that the younger generation was always the biggest. Uh, but that's no longer going to be the case. <laughs> so brands, I think, are going to have to rethink the way they approach the market because up until now, they've been focusing on people in their 20s and 30s, as we know from watching advertisements on TV, right? And then how about the labor market? Well, look, we're living longer. Um, a 60-year-old today in the United States, there's 12,000 of them who are celebrating today their 60th birthday, so happy birthday to all of them. They will live, on average, another 24 years. That's another lifetime. They cannot be in retirement all of that time. They don't have enough savings. So the labor market is also going to change because people above the age of 60, 65, 70, many of them will like to continue working. And by the way, another trend. Now we stay in good mental and physical shape much longer. So a 60-year-old today is a much more dynamic, active person than a 60-year-old three generations ago. So once again, once you start connecting the dots across all of these trends, then you realize, oh, yeah, absolutely. The economy is going to change. Consumption is going to change. The labor market is going to change. 
do you think, um, and I, I understand, and I understand that argument why uh, we're getting older, but uh, again, 60 today, 60 today is not like 60 decades ago, people would be working longer. Yeah, I certainly see, at least in the United States, efforts to counter that by saying, well, maybe we should expand social programs like Medicare uh, to younger ages. And maybe we don't want people working longer. Do you think there's a chance you can see government policy rather than encouraging people to work longer might go the other direction, encourage people to retire earlier? Well, um, let me put it this way. I, I am in favor of providing a social safety net in terms of healthcare, among other things, for people of all ages, not just uh, you know children and people who are into retirement, who are the, as you know, the beneficiaries of um, Medicare. Um, I think what's important to realize here, though, is that something's got to give. What we cannot do is have most people above the age of 60 or 65 being retired because they don't have enough savings, as you know, their, their savings portfolios have been, their investment portfolios have been battered by the crisis. But not only that, they have another 24 years to live on average, right? And that's a very long time. Uh, but I, I want to put an optimistic spin on this. You see, people have already been changing. Americans now, on average, retire at age 64. Uh, but you see, just 10 years ago, the average age of retirement was 61 or 62. Um, so people have already been adjusting to this. But I think now, in the wake of this pandemic, I think we are more keenly aware of the fact that um, we've got to change even more because the environment is changing and things are challenging. And uh, look, there's nothing wrong from continuing to work, especially if you can work remotely, at least part of the week, especially if you can work part time. So I think also the gig economy, which uh, has been criticized very heavily, I think it will actually provide people about the age of 60 with so many flexible options. Because a lot of people, what they hate is, I don't want to commute to the office. I don't want to work five days a week. But hey, if it's part time, I can make some money on the side. I can continue to be connected to people. I, I, I would love to do that, right? That's what I hear from many people. What do we know about how economies function uh, when birth rates are declining? Maybe labor, for, labor forces are shrinking. Uh, we don't, I don't know if we have great examples uh, of what that looks like, but obviously that's happening in some places. So as that, if you, one, is, is that phenomenon going to spread? It's kind of the Japanese phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And what do we know about how an economy works? Our economy built on the idea that populations go up, labor forces go up. What do we know about economies where just the opposite is happening? Yeah, once again, I mean, this, uh, you're raising a very important topic. And it's true for the last 300 years since the Industrial Revolution, population growth has come hand in hand with economic growth for the reasons that you just stated, because you need young people for the economy to be dynamic. You need people of working age for the economy to grow. Now, the situation now is different. Uh, you mentioned Japan. Japan has been completely unable over the last 25 years to overcome the burden of a rapidly aging population. Uh, they're trying to revitalize the economy by asking women who withdrew from the labor force when they got married to go back. And many of them are doing so. But you see, Japan, for example, which is the poster child of these issues that you are um, asking about, um, Japan is very close to immigration. So I do believe that also part of the problem now, part of the solution to the problem is to allow for immigration, orderly immigration. I'm not arguing here 
for a completely open doors policy in the United States. But I think immigration has to be part of the solution because that will help us rebalance the age structure. And then beyond that, um, you know, let's watch China because China has been doing wonderfully over the last 30 years. But you see, by the year 2030, China's going to have 110 million more people above the age of 60. Because as you know, the one-child policy and all the rest, they've been having very few babies for the last 30 years. And uh, their population is also living longer and longer. So I think, um, you know, perhaps um, we are lucky here in the United States that we can watch whatever happens in China next with this process of population aging. And hopefully we can avoid the mistakes that I'm sure they're going to make. Uh, and as you know, they've just faced out the one-child policy precisely for that reason, because they've gotten really scared about the fact that about 40% of their population is going to be above the age of 60 if they don't do something about it. By the year 2030, we'll have been, you know, the, uh, the 21st century will be about a third over. So at that point, will we be able to say, this is a second American century after the 20th century, or we'll be saying, well, we had the American century last century. Now this does look like the Chinese century. Will we be able to say either of those two things or something completely different? I'm, I'm very skeptical about uh, all of those forecasts uh, that China is going to dominate uh, the 21st century. I'm very skeptical because China still has a very long way to go. Let's not forget that they still have 350 million people who are poor who are below the poverty line, mostly living in rural areas. Let's not forget that, that they have a political system uh, that um, I don't think can continue like that forever because people sooner or later will make demands on their government to be more transparent and to be more accountable. And then the other issue that China has, as you know, is unlike the United States, China is a country that uh, has a lot of problems with its neighbors. Uh, there are 17 countries that have a long border with China, okay, 17. And China has a territorial dispute with each one of them. But more importantly here, India is also growing. Uh, India, I think, will be a counterweight to China. And the United States, look, our economy is now roaring back after uh, a year of uh, declines in economic activity. Um, we continue to be the most technologically advanced economy in the world. So I, I'm very skeptical about those forecasts. I think, uh, though, that... Uh, it is different from the 20th century. The United States will not be able to impose its will on other countries the same way that it could in the 20th century. I think the United States will have to work with its allies to um, accomplish things in the world. So I believe, um, you know, the 21st century, what remains of it, um, the, the second two thirds, as you said, are going to be essentially a multipolar world in which uh, the US, China, India are going to be the big actors. And then Europe, if they can get their act together, which is, seems unlikely, uh, they'll also be players. So a multipolar world, I don't think it's going to be dominated by any one country. What's the optimistic Africa story over the next decade? Well, Africa is changing by leaps and bounds. Uh, the middle class is growing. For me, that is the single most important thing. If you travel to Nairobi or Lagos uh, or uh, some of the other you know, big cities in Africa, you will see that, yes, there are poor people, but the middle class is already 20% of the population. And that's the beginning. Um, Africa will continue to grow. Look, they're ahead of the curve, for example, when it comes to mobile payments, because they never had banks, they never had ATMs. So they went straight, right? They leapfrogged all the way to mobile payments using their phones. They're leaders in telemedicine. So now in the United States, we're discovering telemedicine because during the pandemic, we couldn't go to the doctor. 
but they've been practicing telemedicine in sub-Saharan Africa for the last 20 years. So Africa is innovative. It's a young place. Um, yes, they have a growing population, but the rate of growth of that population is slowing down. And um, it's a good thing that they have young people. I think the challenge for Africa is the following. It's still 70% of the population lives in the countryside. And I don't want those people. I wouldn't want those people to move to the city. I would want to create jobs for those people in the countryside. And I think there's a very easy solution for that, which is start producing more food and more efficiently. So in Africa, for that growing population, create jobs in the countryside. I think that if in Africa they have a twin agricultural and industrial revolution over the next uh, 20 years, um, I think uh, they will become the largest market in the world. And look, that's why Chinese companies are investing so heavily in Africa, not because of the oil and the minerals, which of course they have. They're investing in Africa because they believe it's going to become a very big consumer market. For those who are pessimistic about the coming decade, a big part of that pessimism is climate change. They'll say climate change is an existential threat which will influence everything and we're going in the wrong direction. So why isn't your book extremely pessimistic due to climate change? All right. So I do devote an entire chapter in the book to climate change in the context of cities, because let me give you these three pieces of information. Cities occupy 1% of the land in the world, the dry land in the world. They're home to about 55% of the population, but by the year 2030, it will be 70% of the population, right? But now, although it is only 55% of the population, cities contribute 80% of the carbon emissions. So look, there's no solution to the problem of climate change unless we fix the cities. We need to make cities more energy efficient. We need to make cities less wasteful. And I think governments have a role to play. Companies have a role to play. Technological innovation has a role to play. But I believe that as consumers, you and I and our fellow Americans, of course, they also, we also need to all change. We have to become less wasteful. Uh, we waste too many things. Plastics, food, according to the US uh, Department of Agriculture, we waste 30% of the food that reaches our table. So we need to become more conscious, more environmentally conscious as consumers. And that along with technological breakthroughs and the action of governments and companies, I think, if we do that, I'm optimistic that we can still save the world from this very serious problem of climate change. I, I tend to be skeptical of solutions that require, one, big changes of behavior, and two, are built around sort of becoming more efficient. Because when I look at the world, it seems to me that, while there's nothing wrong with being energy efficient, that this world, this global economy is going to need more energy, that we are a high energy planet. And if we want the kinds of the kind of prosperity that we enjoy and advanced economies to be everywhere, as well as keeping our own economies growing, we're not just going to have to become more efficient. We're going to need more energy. Um, are, one, do you, do you agree with that? And two, where's that energy going to come from? Because it seems to me a lot of the focus is on just sort of taking current energy needs, making them less carbon intensive, but not really thinking about the possibility that we're just going to need a lot more energy, not mm -hmm. just by 2030, but by 20, you know, 70, 80, to, you know, and beyond. Absolutely. So look, I share your skepticism. And I think that skepticism is always good because that will hopefully uh, prevent us from becoming complacent. Okay. So I think uh, this is a steep mountain that we have to climb here in terms of overcoming the problem of uh, climate change. As to energy, look, uh, in Europe and the United States, since the oil crisis of 73, when Nixon was president, you remember those days, 
That was a long time ago, right? Nearly 50 years ago. Since then, we have reduced the carbon intensity of the economy by 80%, meaning that to produce one unit of gross domestic product, right, of those goods and services that we make every day, every year, we're now using 80% less carbon emissions, right? We've become so much more efficient. But I think now we need to make another transition there, which is not just becoming more efficient, which is, as you were alluding to, is to replace fossil fuels with something else. Yesterday, um, there was a very nice um, headline in the Wall Street Journal. The headline was, the price for lithium batteries has dropped by 97% over the last 10 years. 97%, right? So we are making now batteries. We're making all of the other components that we need for electric vehicles, for example, so much more efficiently, so much more, um, you know, with a better technology and so on and so forth. So I think we're getting there, but we just need to make that, that quantum leap there into the future and disconnect ourselves from fossil fuels. It's difficult, but we need to do that. Because as you said, there's only that much we can do by just reducing carbon emissions, by becoming more efficient in the use of fossil fuels. We've already done a lot of that with that 80% reduction since Nixon was president. Uh, so since the uh, first oil shock, we need to switch our paradigm, I think, when it comes to energy, uh, to embrace solar, wind, uh, other sources of renewable and green uh, electricity. And of course, continue to invest in biomass, to invest in fuel cells, to invest in all of these other technologies that may in the future, hopefully very near future, um, you know, may help us overcome this problem. So I think, and I think if I, again, my, you know, my, my gloomy case, we, we looked at climate and probably other gloomy cases, the jobs are going. Mm -hmm. AI, robots taking mm -hmm. the jobs. We might as well just start planning our universal basic incomes uh, because AI is just going to rip through these job markets over the next decade totally upend them, higher, higher unemployment, more people not working. Uh, what do you think will be the impact um, about a technology more, more broadly on labor markets? Well, um, technological change, as you said, destroys jobs, even destroys entire occupations or professions. There's no question about that. It also creates jobs. We shouldn't forget about that. So really, what I think we need to worry about, which is what we didn't do over the last 20 years, is to take care of those who are displaced by technology. They lose their jobs at a time when, you know, it's very difficult for them to retool, to learn a new occupation or profession. So I'm talking specifically about people in their 40s, in their 50s. We need to create the mechanisms so that those people can go back to school, so to speak, maybe online even, and find new ways of living. But I think um, the time has also come uh, for the United States to have a, a national debate about what you mentioned, a basic income. Um, because we are a consumer-oriented economy, and if not everybody has a job, then that creates an issue. Um, I would drop the universal aspect of uh, the basic income, and because I don't think uh, everybody deserves it. In fact, it could be counterproductive. I think only those who are displaced by technology should be getting a basic income during the time that it takes them to prepare to train for another occupation or profession. But you're absolutely correct. I mean, there will be job losses because of technological change. There's no question about it. The problem is you cannot stop technological change. We cannot say here in the United States, okay, we're not going to innovate any longer while the rest of the world continues to innovate, right? So you have to keep on moving. 
but you have to pay attention to those who are being displaced. What, why does uh, cryptocurrency and blockchain, why does that merit a whole chapter for you? Well, blockchain, as you know, is the technology that underlies uh, the original use of Bitcoin. So it's a digital registry where you can uh, essentially store all kinds of information about smart contracts, about births and uh, deaths, about uh, who owns something. And therefore has the potential, if you think about it, of um, essentially making middle management redundant because middle managers are companies. What they do is they make sure that contracts are being fulfilled, that the supplier is delivering the goods on time, that the payments are reaching um, you know, whoever there's uh, meant uh, to be uh, to reach. Um, so blockchain, I think um, uh, we still haven't seen the full impact of it. It's going to have revolutionary effects on middle management in particular. A lot of white collar jobs may be once again destroyed as a result of the blockchain. Now, cryptocurrencies, again, they, they also use the blockchain. Um, and uh, crypto is a very interesting development. Now, I don't think cryptocurrencies by themselves, as I explained in the book, are going to become widely used because the Federal Reserve and governments throughout the world will never tolerate that. They don't want to lose control over monetary policy, over interest rates, and so on and so forth. This is what I think is going to happen. Governments are going to issue their own digital currencies. China is already doing that in the next few months. And uh, the Federal Reserve um, has a uh, project um, geared towards launching a digital dollar. Um, but I think cryptocurrencies will be able to play a role in the future if they are bundled with other things, like, for example, discount coupons or smart contracts and so on and so forth. And uh, I would call those then digital tokens, digital tokens that enable us to do many different kinds of things, not just make payments or receive payments. How significantly has the pandemic sort of altered your view about what the next decade holds? Um, to a very large extent. So, so, the book came, so the book came out. Mm -hmm. So I imagine you started writing this before the pandemic, right? I did. I did. But I was able to introduce some changes to it uh, during the first two or three months of the uh, pandemic because the book came out in August. Right. But let me, let me explain. It's actually relatively straightforward. And uh, you alluded to it uh, earlier in our conversation here, which is the pandemic, for the most part, has accelerated pre-existing trends with some exceptions. And you noted one of them, which was cities. Maybe some people now prefer to live further away from the downtown area because they can work remotely and they would prefer to be in a more sparsely populated area. So the pandemic has accelerated technological change, has accelerated automation, has accelerated uh, population aging, has accelerated the rise of the emerging markets of Asia because they haven't had as many cases and deaths as we have. Um, but the pandemic, in addition to slowing down the growth of cities, or even in some cases reversing it, has also, I think, uh, put on hold for the time being the progress that women were making in the labor market. Because as you know, we continue to have this unequal allocation of tasks between men and women in the home. Uh, and so when the kids stayed at home because schools were closed, many working women in the United States realized that they couldn't do everything. And so they decided to withdraw from the labor market. If you remember in January, just a couple of months ago, the US Labor Department reported that 2.5 million American women had withdrawn from the labor market during the pandemic. And of course, I don't think this is a good trend. So it is a trend that the pandemic has um, slowed down or brought to a halt. Because remember, women were making steady economic progress in this country, as well as in many other parts of the world. My guest today has been Marl Guillen. Marl, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. Mm -hmm.